Have you ever known anybody who buried money in their backyard? Hands, anybody? You ever know anybody who did that? Uh, I read that this was a fairly common thing for those who lived through the Great Depression. Uh, you know, they, they kind of got burnt there with the banks and investments, and so they were notorious for hiding their money in mattresses and burying it in uh, the backyard. I once knew a person who admitted to me that they had money buried all over their backyard. Now, I'm no financial expert, but I'm pretty certain that that is a bad investment strategy, okay? You, you bury $100 in the backyard and you wait a year, five years, 10 years, 50 years, uh, you still, at best, have $100. And that's if the, the elements didn't get to it, the worms didn't get to it. But, but you might have $100. When you bury money in the backyard, uh, you never get to experience the magic of compound interest. It's just $100. And, and the person that admitted to me that they had money buried all over their yard, they were intelligent. Uh, they held a good job. They made great money. This was a, a knowledgeable person, but they buried their money in their backyard. And because of this, I was tempted to conclude some pretty unflattering things about the person because I thought this was such a misguided thing to do. But there was something that stopped me from doing that and instead caused me to have great compassion for this person. I knew that this person had been raised in extreme poverty. I knew they had faced lack and insecurity in their childhood. And I knew that the hurt they experienced growing up had contributed to this habit of burying money in the backyard. I still believed that burying money in the backyard was not a good idea. I still thought it was a really misguided practice. But I understood what shaped the person in this way. I understood that the practice resulted from pain early in their life. And so instead of concluding unflattering things about the person, instead... I felt compassion for the person. Have you ever known anyone that was so insecure that they had one of two personality uh, you know, responses to that? Either they withdrew into themselves and you couldn't hardly get them to communicate with you, or they overcompensated and, and they just became like this, uh, by appearances, this overconfident, annoying, obnoxious person. Don't, don't point, just uh, have, you, have you ever known anybody uh, like that? You know, either of those things can be very annoying. Somebody who just won't communicate with you or someone who's just so over the top with this fake confidence uh, that, that it's, just, it's just annoying. But would you be able to have more patience for a person like that if you were able to know that the insecurity they struggle with and the, this personality quirk that they have resulted from years of being bullied in school? Would you be able to feel different uh, about them? Would you be able to have more patience for them? I hope that for most of us, the answer to that question is yes. Hopefully for most of us, as we learn more about a person's story, when we get clued in to the hurts and pains that have visited people's lives, we can better understand why they are like they are. 
And without ever condoning things that should not be condoned, we can have genuine sympathy for them and feel sorrow over the experiences that damage them. And instead of criticizing them and judging them harshly or dismissing them, we can instead desire healing for them and even ask God if there might be some role he could have us play in being helpful in their healing. That's compassion. And as the song we sing around here quite a bit begins, everyone needs compassion. Dictionary.com defines compassion this way, a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. Merriam-Webster's defines it very similarly, sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Today, as we continue our series, Divine Emotions, How God Feels About You, I want us to see in the scriptures that one of the emotions that God has toward us is compassion. In the first week of this series, we talked about how God feels love for us. He, he, he doesn't just love us in kind of a cold, detached way, like, hey, I made a decision to be committed to you, and so I'm just going to stay committed. No, he, he feels love for us. He, he experiences the emotion of love. And then last week, uh, Ben shared with us how God experiences the emotion of jealousy, uh, which is born out of his great desire for us. It, 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 it's born out of how much he values us and how much he wants to have a relationship with us. And now today I want us to see from the scriptures that God is compassionate toward us. God is compassionate toward you. And so again, I'm going to be reading a number of scriptures. You can, uh, I think most of them will be on the screen behind me, and then you can read through some of these uh, this week. I want to begin with Psalm 145.9. Actually, I'm going to read 8 and 9, and here's what they say. The Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All means all. means all. God is compassionate toward everyone. You've never met a person that God's not compassionate toward. He is compassionate toward you. He's compassionate toward me. He's compassionate toward the person whose insecurities have damaged their personality. He's compassionate toward the person with anger problems. Even when the anger problems are directed at you, he's still compassionate toward them. He's compassionate toward the person who cut you off in traffic this week. He is compassionate toward the person who gave you really poor customer service this week. God has compassion on all he has made. He's compassionate toward everyone. He feels sympathy and sorrow over the distress of every single person's life and He desires to alleviate their trouble. I don't have an exhaustive list for us today, but I want us to look at a number of groups of people that we see in the scripture that that we are specifically told God has compassion toward. 
And here's the first one I want you to see, uh, Matthew 9, 36. Here's what it tells us. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here's what this tells us. And other places in scripture confirm this. God is compassionate toward those who are far from him. This phrase, sheep without a shepherd, lets us know that Jesus is looking out at a crowd of people who are not connected to God, people who are far from God. God sees and knows every person who is far from him, and here's the truth, he is not angered by them. He's not dismissive of them. He has feelings for them. He feels sympathy for them. He has sympathy for the troubles in their lives, and God desires to help them. Christian, the person who is far from God is someone that God is compassionate toward. Are you? Am I? Are we compassionate toward the people God is compassionate toward? And then some of you here today, if you examine your life, you'd have to say, you know what? I belong in that category of a person who's far from God. And if that's you, I want you to know today that God is not annoyed by you. He is not angry toward you. God is compassionate toward you. Here's the truth. God knows the things that have kept you from him. He's aware of the obstacles the enemy of your soul has put in your path to keep you from considering him, from turning to him. And he is not angry about these things. Instead, God is compassionate toward you. And then in Luke 19, 41 through 44, we see something else. We read, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here's what's happening in these verses. Jesus is weeping over people who have rejected him and thereby they have rejected God. He knows that their rejection is going to bring trouble upon them. They have rejected God's care, God's provision, God's protection. And Jesus is weeping over this. He's not angry that people have rejected him. He's not gleefully telling them how much trouble they're in for rejecting them. He is sorrowful about their rejection. He he, he is compassionate toward them. He feels for them. He, He desires them. He wants good things for them, but they will not receive. They will not turn to him. For the help that he could give them if they would simply turn to him. So we learn that not only is God compassionate toward those who are far from him, maybe far from him just because they've been inattentive, but he is actually compassionate toward those who willfully reject him. They're not just inattentive, they consider him and they reject him. There are probably a few folks in here today who have been actively, willfully rejecting God. And you need to know that he's not mad at you. He is compassionate toward you. He has strong feelings for you, positive feelings, sympathetic feelings. Because God is compassionate 
toward those who reject him. And then we see something else in Psalm 103, 13 and 14. Here's what these say. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So we see two things here. The reference to children and those who fear him let us know that this verse now isn't talking about people who are far from God or who have rejected God. This verse is talking about people who are close to God, people who belong to him. And the reference to remembering how we are formed speaks to the weakness of people who belong to him, the weakness of those who are close to him. And if you read a verse or two uh, before the ones we did in the 103rd Psalm, uh, the context makes it quite clear that what's being addressed here are those who belong to God, but they disobey God. They sin against God. They're his people, and yet they sin against him. And so we've seen that God is compassionate toward those who are far. God is compassionate toward those who reject him. And now we see that God is compassionate toward those who belong to him, but they fail him. They sin against him. Now look, we may dismiss this one as easy. Well, of course God is compassionate toward those who belong to him, we might say. But let me ask you to consider something. Which failures, which which wrongs that you suffer hurt you the worst? Are, are, are you most hurt when somebody you don't know does something hurtful to you? Or are you most hurt when someone who has pledged their love and their care and their fidelity to you hurts you? Which hurts the worst? I think it's clear. The greatest pains in life come when we are let down by those the closest to us, when we are betrayed by a friend. Those of us who belong to Jesus, when we sin, in some real sense, our sin is actually hurtful to God. Because what's happening is God is being betrayed by those who are the closest to him. We don't like to think of our sin like that, And yet that's really what it is. I don't know about you, but when I have been hurt by those closest to me, that's when I have the hardest time moving past it, forgiving. But God doesn't respond like that. God isn't unkind. God doesn't get angry. He doesn't rail against us in a booming voice about how he can't believe that we've violated the relationship like this. No, even when those closest to him fail him, God feels compassion for us. I'm not going to read it today, um, but you can read in John 11 this week. It shares the story of Jesus and his friend Lazarus when, when Lazarus died. And it tells about the compassion that Jesus had on Lazarus' family during that time. And here's what... Uh, John chapter 11 lets us know. It lets us know that God has compassion toward those who suffer loss. And that's every single one of us. Sooner or later, every person who ever lives on planet earth has to say goodbye to somebody that they love. Sooner or later, every person is separated by death from somebody that they don't want to be separated from. From somebody that they cannot imagine life without. 
every one of us either have or will face this kind of loss in life. And we need to know that Scripture lets us know God is compassionate toward us. He is compassionate toward you over the loss that you've suffered. God feels your pain. He knows the hurt that you experience. He feels sorrow for you. He is sympathetic toward you. And God wants to help you. He wants to alleviate your suffering. God is compassionate toward those who suffer loss. Then we find a couple of more groups of people that God is compassionate toward in Matthew 12, 20. Here's what Matthew 12, 20 tells us. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. These are wonderful words. The bruised reed represents the person who has been injured by life. They've been hurt. Life has inflicted real damage on them. And here's the truth. It is to varying degrees, but life bruises every single one of us. We all carry scars from the wounds that life has inflicted on us. It's different for each one of us, but we all have something. The names you were called in elementary school have bruised you. The academic struggles you had have left you with a negative self-image. You've been bruised. The multiple rejections when you tried to ask people out on a date have bruised you. Or the fact that you didn't get asked out on a date has bruised you. The prolonged period of unemployment has hurt your confidence. It's so damaged you that you can hardly send out the resume or go on the next interview. The harsh words of a parent, the inappropriate touch of a family friend, these things have bruised. The cruel comment about your appearance bruised you. The divorce that you didn't want but couldn't get your spouse to turn away from, it bruised you. The death of a loved one bruised you. God is compassionate toward those who have been injured by life. Matthew 12, 20 tells us he will not break a bruised reed. God handles the bruised gently. He wants to help. He wants to heal. He's compassionate toward those injured by life. A bruised reed he won't break. And then we're told that a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And this speaks to those who are weak in faith. God is compassionate toward those whose faith is weak. Listen, if you're here today and you're in a season when you've been asking tough questions of God... He's not offended. He is not offended if you're wrestling with questions like, why is there so much suffering in the world? And if you're in a season right now where those questions have weakened your faith, God's not angry. God's not angry if your faith is weak. 
He's not offended if you're barely holding on to faith. It's quite different than that. God is compassionate toward you. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. What he wants to do is breathe on it. He wants to breathe on it and help it to once again grow into a strong flame. I'm guessing that there are a number of people here today that your faith is weak. A smoldering wick is almost a perfect description of your faith. It's barely there. You know, it's like that one little smoldering ember on the bottom of the, of the pile of wood. It's just barely there. William Barclay wrote of this verse and of people whose faith uh, is weak. He said this, Jesus came not to treat the weak with contempt, but with understanding. He came not to extinguish the weak flame, but to nurse it back to a clearer and stronger light. The most precious thing about Jesus is the fact that he is not the great discourager, but the great encourager. God is compassionate toward everyone. Whatever your problem, whether you are far from him or close to him, whether your pain is a result of your own sin or sins committed against you, whatever the case, God is compassionate toward you. And scripture tells us why it is that God is compassionate toward us. And one of the things we find is found again in the 103rd Psalm, verse 14. Uh, It says this, I want to read the 14th verse again. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. This means that God fully understands us. He created us and he knows we are weak. He knows that we are prone to fail him. And here's the other thing that God knows. God knows how the problems we face in life damage us. God knows this. God's not surprised when someone who's been sexually abused becomes promiscuous. He understands how those things are related. He doesn't condone it, but he understands the cause and the effect. He understands what bullying does to a person's confidence and view of themselves, how it damages their personality. He understands the damage that is inflicted by the belittling words of a parent He understands how losing a loved one does real damage to us, really bruises us. He understands how rejection at job interview after job interview impacts a person. He understands the damage that living in a fallen world does to people. And he understands the destructive habits that take root in our lives when we try to respond in our own strength to these things and when we try to find ways to medicate our hurts apart from him. He never excuses our destructive responses to our pain. He never excuses our sinful ways of dealing with our pain. We know he doesn't excuse them because it is for our sin that Jesus Christ died on the cross. 
And so we know God doesn't excuse our sin, but he does understand our pain and he does understand the ways that we try to medicate our pain when we do so apart from him. And because he so completely understands our experiences and our responses to them, because he understands how the enemy uses those things to bring destruction into our lives, his understanding allows him to see past our wrong choices to the deep issues that influence our wrong choices. And so instead of being angry with us, God is able to be compassionate toward us. God is compassionate toward you. Hear me well today. None of your pain excuses your wrong choices. But God understands everything about you. He knows why you struggle in the unique ways that you struggle. And he is compassionate toward you. He feels sorrow for you. He feels sympathetic toward you. And he wants to help you. He wants to help you. And then we find another reason that God is compassionate toward us in Hebrews 4.15. Here's what it says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Here's what this means. Jesus Christ, during his 33 and a half years on this earth, faced the exact same trials and temptations and mistreatments that we all face. He didn't sin, but he faced everything that we face. He endured all the mistreatment that we endure. He suffered the losses that we suffer. He lived in the exact same fallen world that we live in. And he saw from our perspective the junk that life throws at us. In Christ, God understands our experience, not in a God-knows-everything sort of a way, but in an experiential way. He actually lived the experiences we live. He faced the same stuff. He just did it without responding in sinful ways like we do. And so you need to know that God understands what you've faced in life and he understands what those experiences have done to you, how they've hurt you, the damage they've done to you, the dysfunction that they've made you susceptible to. He understands all of this. And because he understands it, God is compassionate toward everyone. He feels sympathy and sorrow for us because he understands how we're made. He knows we're weak. And because Christ experienced firsthand the reality of human beings living in a fallen world. Most of us think of compassion as feeling sorrow for someone, understanding how they feel, being sympathetic toward them. But the full definition, as I read earlier, includes the desire to alleviate the other person's suffering, their distress, their misfortune. And I will admit, I would imagine most of you are willing to admit that often on that count, we fall short. We feel for another person, 
but it often doesn't translate into a true desire to help, or if it does translate into that, we then aren't sure how to help, or even if we think we know how to help, we oftentimes are powerless to help. But none of this is true for God. While we often fall short on fulfilling the definition of compassion, God fulfills the full definition of compassion. God is not only sympathetic and sorrowful for our difficulties, but God desires to help us. God desires to alleviate your suffering. And here's a really great thing to remember about God. Not only does he desire to help us, but God has the power to help us. What we can't do for ourselves and what we cannot do for each other, God can do for us. Here's what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And then you go into verse 16 and you find out something else. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God fulfills the full definition of grace, uh, of compassion. He is invested in us. He feels for us. These feelings cause him to want to help us, and he has the power to help us. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us how we can find the help we need from God, how we can receive the help we need from God. And here's how we do it. We realize what is true about God, that he understands us, that in Christ he has experienced the things we do, that he really does know our struggles, that he wants to help us in our time of need. And confident of these true things about God, we then turn to him. We come to him. We approach his throne of grace. When we do, when we recognize that he is able to help us and we turn to him for help, rejecting our own sinful medication of our problems, rejecting the stuff we've tried to medicate our pain that's never worked, recognizing his care for us, recognizing his power to help us. With this confidence, we turn to God And when we do, the writer assures us that God will provide the mercy we need, that he will provide the grace we need. And oftentimes we're tempted to think of grace only as like forgiveness or God's unmerited favor, and those things are true. But in this context, grace means more than that. Grace means power for the future. Grace means power to overcome the difficulties in life. God will meet us in our time of need and God will help us. Friends, God is your hope and your help. Jesus Christ is the answer for the damage life in this fallen world has done to you. Jesus is the help for your insecurity. He is the help for your destructive habits. He is the help that can heal the hurtful words that wounded you. But you will never receive his help if you will not turn to him. He is pursuing you. He is pleading with you to allow him to help you. But we have to turn to him. We get healed from all the wounding life does to us as we turn to Jesus, press into Jesus, receive from Jesus. 
He is our answer. He is the only answer. He's the only answer that the church has to offer the world. I mean, fundamentally, Jesus is what we offer the world. We offer community and support of one another and a lot of these kind of things. But the central thing that the church has to offer the world is Jesus. He is the only answer. He is your only answer for healing and freedom. He has feelings for you. He's compassionate toward you. He wants to help you. He can help you. And so if we want to be healed, if we want to stop constantly being stuck in the pain of our past, if we want to stop being so messed up because of our sins and the sins committed against us, then our only hope is to turn to Jesus, turn to him today, receive his help. Only he can do the things that we need done at the deepest places of our lives. There's one final thing that I want to share with you today. Many of us here have become aware of God's compassion for us. We have received his help. We remain in ongoing need of his compassion, but we've experienced it and we have been helped by him. I believe that others here are going to experience that. I hope some today. And for all of us who have or will receive God's compassion, here's something that we need to respond to. We are called by God to extend to others the compassion that we have received from God. Here's what Ephesians 4.32 tells us. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The world does not have enough compassion fully defined. It has a lot of sentimentality, but it doesn't have much compassion fully defined. And it's a tragic thing because everyone truly does need compassion. And so if you're a person who says, you know what, I have been on the receiving end of God's compassion, you recognize that, you've seen the benefits of that, then I appeal to you today to commit to extending compassion to others. And here's a, here's a powerful thought for us. Often, God expresses his compassion for people through us. What is it that we believe as Christians? We will say this often. We're the body of Christ. We are Christ's hands and feet in the world. No doubt God can directly communicate his compassion to a person, and he does. And there are things in a person's life that only God can do. We we, we really can't be of much help. But often God uses his body. He uses the church. He uses individual Christians to be a conduit of his compassion for those who are far from him, for those who are rejecting him, for those who belong to him but fail him, for those who suffer loss, for those who are injured by life and whose faith is weak. And so let's commit today as individual Christians and collectively as the church called Vineyard of Pataskala. To be a church that is marked by compassion, to be a people who are marked by compassion, full of compassion for others, 
never excusing sin, but always understanding people's struggles, always remembering the hurt behind the dysfunction, sympathizing with others, and desiring to help them connect with Jesus where their help comes from. Every person that you're going to interact with in this coming week needs compassion. Let's extend it as God has extended it to us. Why don't you stand?